0: Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Politically Entertaining. This is your first time. Welcome to the show. Uh, I'm Frank. I'm here with Byron. Byron, go ahead and get the listeners up to speed on what we, we talk about on Politically Entertaining and get anything off your chest that you want to talk about.
1: We pretty much talk about news and politics. We try to uh, break it down for you for those that don't you know, follow the news every single day like me and Frank may do. And we just want to be that source you can come to once a week and we tell you what's important, and we tell you uh things that you may need to know that isn't covered as much in the media. Had a great episode last week, got some great response to the Trump rant, so we hope we can continue to uh do those type of shows for you. Um, I also had a, before we get started, Frank, I had a correction. Last week, as I was talking about, um, I believe it was Bernie Sanders and the whole Chicago thing, I mentioned a young man that was killed by the police in Chicago a couple of years ago by the name of Laquan Cook. That was my mistake. His name is Laquan McDonald. He just happens to be in Cook County, so I don't know if I confused that or whatever, but I apologize for that. His name is Laquan McDonald. We'll talk more about him later in the show as he ties into the Kim Fox election. But before we get into politics and news, Frank, I I just want to I don't know how much basketball you've been watching man but uh obviously Steph Curry is the reigning MVP. Is he the most disrespectful player in in a NBA history? I mean the way he shoots and you know he turns around sometimes he daps his his teammates up before the ball even goes through the net. Like have you have you seen any of his plays this year?
0: I have. Um you know is he the most disrespectful shooter you said, or player? Player. Uh,
1: in, in, in a good way, like I it, don't mean it, like how oh, okay. okay.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I think I think he's up there with with the other players. I think he's I think he's rising into the level um, of a superstar that does things. And I think he's just different because we don't think I don't think we've ever seen anybody who can shoot like him. You know, from the outside with his range and his consistency, it's no different than say. Uh, you know, when LeBron, uh, was dunking and he does, you know, his antics and, you know, things like that. And, you know, but, but he does them above the rim. He's a big, you know, strong guy, you know, and, you know, basically, uh, athletic freak. Whereas Curry looks like a guy who's, you know, he's, you know, pretty tall. You know, he's fairly tall, uh, for the real world, but not super tall in the NBA world. And he's just wreaking havoc. Uh so I'd say that he's on par with the other superstars of his uh of his uh you know generation or any any generation really he's finding his stride and you know he's letting everybody know that he's the best shooter in the league, certainly the best player this year uh looking for another m v p and certainly another title so uh, I think it's all par for the course uh in my opinion.
1: he would not score those points on me. I got two hard quick technical fouls. Okay. before he's before he puts up 35 on me man to Politically Entertaining, your Notes to American Politics. And now, your host, Frank and Byron. All right, once again, welcome back to Politically Entertaining. I'm Byron Evans with my man, Frank Turner. We're going to uh, go down the list of things from Kim Fox to uh, we have a great interview with Dr. Claiborne Carson, and we'll also talk about broker conventions because that's coming up a lot. But for now, we wanted to start off with Governor Snyder of Michigan, a lot of you may know him because of the Flint, uh, Flint, Michigan water crisis. He came before Congress today and he testified. And Frank, he really did a lot of blaming. Now, uh, to his credit, he did accept some blame and he said, you know, there are some things we could have done more, some questions we could have asked more. But he also blamed, uh, the EPA, also the, the, the state environmental, uh, agency as well, so. I just wanted to get your thoughts on: Is that enough responsibility that he's taking? Do you think he should step down? Because a lot of members of Congress were saying that he needs to resign, and you know, it's it's also become political too, man. Like, you got the Republicans pretty much calling for the the head of EPA to step down because that's an Obama administration cabinet position, and you got the Democrats asking him to step down, the governor, because he is a Republican. And for, you know, for once, can we just be humans and just try to do the right thing and fix the crisis without it becoming political? So I guess that's a two-part question. Do you do you think he should resign, and do you think he's accepted enough accountability?
0: Okay, so I'm going to answer your question in reverse by, um I, I guess, no, he has not accepted enough responsibility, I don't believe. I, I don't, and also I believe when you're the governor of a state, that's as in powerful position as as you can really get, other than say being a, the president, uh, you know, because you have such autonomy over your state. I mean, for those who don't understand how powerful a governor is. Uh, go back 50 years and, 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 look. you know, obviously you guys probably know this. Look up George Wallace and how he blocked the, you know, integration of the University of Alabama. And the National Guard had to come in. The National Guard that comes in when there's disasters, when there's potential terrorist attack, had to come in and escort um, young black men and women into the doors of the University of Alabama. Um, because, you know, the Governor Wallace said segregation now, segregation today, segregation forever. Um, I believe that's what he said. I mean but basically he, he wasn't he wasn't budging is was what he was saying and what I'm saying is the governor has a lot of responsibility, a lot of power. And with that, you know, you have to take the responsibility for that. Uh you know, as far as the idea of blaming uh the, the, the Democrats, you know, blaming him more and, and the Republicans blaming the EPA as far as i can understand a local water supply is not something the epa would be directly involved in if if i can i, I, don't, I don't know everything about it but what i'm saying is it seems like that would be a local issue initially why who, who who was in charge of switching to you know these contaminated water lines it probably wasn't the epa i mean and and, and it seemed like the samples came back dirty and then some somebody had had basically taken a couple of samples out to make it look like it wasn't quite at the level that it should because the EPA would have flagged it, but some, I believe, and I don't have the source, and I do apologize to the listeners for not having the source, but I do believe that there was a situation where the water tested dirty and those who were in charge of testing the water threw out a couple of samples to make the baseline just low enough so that the EPA didn't flag it. So I don't know if this is the EPA's problem. I think this is Governor Snyder's problem and, and and it's a local issue. And, and the thing is, for for the for the um the, for the Republicans, they they're a big thing on they're big on state right and, and autonomy of a state. Well, you can't pass the buck, you know, when you when it's convenient for you. So if you want responsibility of states' rights and things like that, then you take responsibility for poisoning your residents and don't blame it on the EPA. That would be my argument. I'm not trying to be partisan. I'm just saying if you're so big on saying, well, I you know, I'm in charge of my state, I'm you know, you've got these governors who didn't want to implement, you know, Affordable Care Act, they don't they want to deny gay marriage, but then they want to blame the EPA when the water is poisoned on their watch. To me, there has to be some uh you know, what's good for the goose, goose is good for the gander. It's like you can't just pick and choose what you want to be responsible for. It's like if you're responsible for uh, you know if, if you want to be responsible for the healthcare not funding those exchanges not allowing gay marriage you also need to be responsible for poisoning young boys and girls and their families that that are going to have life lasting uh, consequences for these people so I mean, I'm just, I'm just blown away that this has become political. I wish it wasn't even political. I wish it was a man who was in charge of the state failed. He needs to resign, and they need to get the water cleaned up. Like my thing is, they're having these hearings and he's testifying. But what about the water? Is the water safe yet? I don't care if you know about him and if, if he's vilified or it, you know that. That's what really bothers me about this process. They're up there in meetings and they're all you know heckling each other or you know trying to feel good about their position. But then there's kids still drinking dirty water. I don't know.
1: I don't know if this will be a good example, but my my biggest problem with him, because he is right, you know, there are other people to blame, but the buck start, stops with him. And I hope this is a good example. If, if not, we'll see. But, like, you're a new father, and I'm also a father. Okay, so if I hire an agency to uh, send me a babysitter to watch my child, okay, and me and my wife, we go out, we have a good time, we come back home and we see all kind of, You know, marks on our child, and she says, Dad, you know, the babysitter, you know, they, they really harmed me. And I, and I go to the agency and I say, hey, you know, my child is claiming that the person you sent harmed my child. And they say, okay, we'll look into it. They look into it and say, oh no, no, they, uh, you know, the person we sent said they didn't, they didn't do that. And I, and I let that go, and I let that happen like two, three, four more times. That's pretty much what the governor did. Like, he heard the complaints of the citizens, but then he passed it off to, like, you know, uh, the EPA and the state, uh, environmental agency when you saw the color of the water. You saw the, I mean, you smelled the odor of the water. You didn't need anybody else to tell you something was wrong. Just listen to them. So, like, if, if some harm was done to my child, I don't need to go to an agency and have them investigate anything. I'm, I'm going to look and see and, and know I need to do something about it. And that's the disappointing thing about him, in my in my opinion. So, yes, other people are to blame, but the, the buck should start start with him. And it's unfortunate that, you know, he doesn't see it that way. And I felt this way before I knew he was a Republican. When I read the story, I, I've never heard of Governor Snyder, so I didn't know what he was. I just knew when I read the story that some heads needed to roll and it needed to start with him. Now, um, <clears throat> excuse me. In the introduction, I mentioned Laquan McDonald and Kim Fox, and I I think we uh we should gloat on this one a little bit, Frank, and pat ourselves on the back because now that Kim Fox has won her election this past Tuesday to be the Democratic representative for state's attorney in, in Illinois, we first mentioned her on the very first episode of Politically Entertaining when we mentioned her. And DeRay, who was running for mayor of Baltimore, and we were saying how a lot of Black Lives Matter people are moving into the political realm of things. And so now you see her, she's on MSNBC. And, you know, I saw her the other night, man, and I was, I was like a, almost like a proud dad, like, ha, me and Frank, we talked about her first. But, (laughs) but she won her election, and she beat Anita Alvarez, and pretty much it was because of the handling of the Laquan McDonald shooting, for those that don't remember, because uh, it has been quite a few. Um, this was in Chicago. I believe he did have a knife, but he was about 20 feet away from the officer who was behind cover, behind his police car. And in the report he tried to say Laquan lunged at him, but when you watch the dash cam video, which took two years to release to the public, like people had to fight to get this video released, It showed that not only did he not lunge at the officer, but he was, like, walking away. And the officer, it was like it's several officers, but he is the only one that I guess, you know, what a lot of police officers say, their life was in danger. He felt his life was in danger 20 feet away behind a police car with this young man walking away from him. He shot him 16 times and killed him. So a lot of residents of Chicago are upset that, A, it took so long for the video to come about, And, B, it took her two years to charge this officer. They did not like the handling. And the fact that they had to fight so hard to get this tape released, you know, just really made it seem like the department and the DA's office was trying to hide something. And so Kim Fox ran against her, and she won in a landslide victory. And I'm going to let you jump in, Frank, but I do want to let the ladies know who may care. She is a Delta Sigma Theta. I know some of you sorority girls may care about that, but. Very happy for her um, because that's what the citizens wanted, and I like when, you know, the voters get what they want, and hopefully if she wins the the general election, she can definitely bring about change because, you know, I think a lot of people feel like, you know, black lives matter and people are just anti-police and stuff. I think for the most part black people want to be able to trust police and the justice system, and I'm hoping that she can instill that trust back in that community and they can make
0: some positive changes. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, Kim Fox, I mean, she seems like she has a lot of energy, and I think that what we're seeing, and I don't want to bring up Ferguson again, but it comes back to that, is like there is there are corrupt people in the local office, local officials that are causing these problems to happen. And I, and I know that we talk about, uh, you know, Trump, we talk about, uh, you know, different things nationally at the, you know, national level, but I, I want people to realize how important it is to to get the right people in your local uh, elections, you know, your your district attorneys, your councilmen, because what happens in these type of situations, when you have people that are in cahoots with the, you know, with the system that are not working for you, you take two years for something like this, Laquan McDonald, you know, d- uh dash camera or the police cam to get released, and it shouldn't have taken that long. And there's no way that, that the officer shouldn't have been responsible for that, for discharging his weapon. And going back to what you said about Black Lives Matter, I totally think that it goes back to two things. Some people feel like it means Black Lives Matter more, and some people want to mean and – and the people who are part of the movement think it just means it means Black Lives Matter also. So I think that – people just can't get over the term black lives matter it's just like there's a problem with saying black lives more than anything to me because i think the people behind the movement they they really don't want any preferential treatment they want the same treatment they want to feel like if they get stopped that they're not going to get accosted or they they're not going to get uh, you know arrested for no reason they they want to feel like they have the same rights and privileges of every citizen in this country so you know with that in mind i'm i'm happy that you know Kim Fox is now in you know in a position to potentially change things and hopefully she'll find out you know some other issues and and, and generally this corruption runs deep man that's what's so messed up it's like the whole Ferguson thing you had the whole sheriff's department, district we were kind of working together and it was nuts and, and it was so it was so wrong and then everybody's like well what Obama needs to do something people realize local election the, the president can't do anything about that you know and and I think that's the the, the one of the best things about you know Donald Trump and, and President Obama, as far as his, his presidency, and now the rise of Trump is seeing that these pockets of, of uh, you know how would you call it? I w- I want to just say race. I want to just say racism, but these pockets of uh, you know in, injustice are happening at a local level, and and that's what people need to understand more than anything. It's like it's so important to to vote in your local elections.
1: Frank has just stated a a common theme of this show, and it's pretty much elections matter. Um, We kind of touched on that with the the DeRay interview um, in the last episode on how, you know, it's not just presidential elections that you should pay attention to, you know. uh, Mayoral elections, city council, state legislation, all of that matters. And, you know, I know that there are a lot of cynical people out there that tell you, elections don't matter. I mean, they're entitled to their opinion, but just keep in mind had Kim Fox, I'm you know, I, I like to think had she been in charge of this investigation, things would have went a lot more different. So just keep that in mind. Elections matter. Um now we got me and Frank we have a great interview coming up for you in a little bit. Uh we we can't stop talking about it. Like we we enjoyed Dr. Carson so much, so I think it'll show in the interview when you hear it in a moment. Um, So we're looking forward to that. Before we get to it, though, Frank, uh, President Obama finally made his Supreme Court pick this week. Mary Garland. That was my reaction to it. That's why that yawn was on purpose, folks. Um, I mean, he's the President of the United States. He's, you know, far smarter than I am or whatever, but I really was – You know, when he announced who it was, I was like, "Uh, okay. And the reason why, and, you know, I just want to warn people, I'm going to inject race, but just hear me out. I just think, you know, considering, you know, Frank, we talked about this, I believe, the first or second episode of Political Entertainment, the Republican-led Senate stance on this whole subject matter was they will not only, not only will they not confirm another Supreme Court pick by Obama, They won't even meet or hold hearings on them. That is the strong stance that they took. So to me, you you need to make a bold move if you're the president. And this is just my opinion, and I'm not saying it's right. I just want people to know what I think. I really think he should have went with a black female. We've never had a black female on the Supreme Court. And I just think that by appointing a black female, it would have really put some pressure on the Senate. You you gotta think. Just just think about the narrative that they could have ran with. Majority white old men telling a black woman that she's not even qualified enough to meet with them. That could have possibly gotten some traction and put pressure on them to at least at least hold hearings on her I'm not I don't think they're gonna confirm anybody that he nominates. I, I'm I'm not that naive. But it would at least uh, put some pressure on him, and by him picking uh, Merrick Garland, who you know he he is a, a United States Court of Appeals judge and in, uh, in the D.C. Circuit, I'm sure he's a very qualified man. You know, Harvard, the whole Harvard connection with Obama, or whatever. But I just felt like he needed a bold move, Frank, and you know, picking picking this guy, it was it was easy for the Senate to say no. As a matter of fact. As soon as he announced uh, Mr. Garland, the Senate Majority Leader came out on the floor like no more than five minutes later and said, we said no then, we're saying no now, and we'll say no until after the general election for president. So that's why I kind of yawned. Did you have any, have any thoughts on this Supreme
0: Court pick? I really did, not I didn't have as strong an opinion as you did. I don't think there's anything wrong with your opinion I also don't think there's anything wrong with who the president appointed. I think, I think, I think he, I think there's two ways, you know, to play chess. And, and he went for, though, he's playing the longer game, uh, you know, as opposed for going made for the quick strike. The quick strike, you know, the shock and all would have been, like you said, and I'm not saying that it's just, just shock and all, but a, a black, you know, qualified female would be like, oh, you know, like you said, look at the old, old white men. You know the old good old boy network and trying you know keeping you know black black good black woman down that kind of thing that and that would have flown but I think what he's also trying to show is that these guys are so ridiculously you know entrenched in their own you know filth basically they 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 they, they they're so busy with their own rhetoric that they won't even confirm a guy who they said that they would like they would have likely confirmed so <laughs> yeah. I think that he kind of in some ways gave Hillary a softball. I know that, I know that's you know, nobody's really thinking about that and I don't know how much he likes Hillary or not, but it's just like that's a huge card to be able to play to say that, you know, when they're gonna be in the dates and she's talking about how obstruct, you know, how much an obstruction the party is, that's a huge thing to put out there because I don't I think mean, people kinda of look at it and not pay attention, but when people hone in and realize that, wow, you know, here it is and you know, you don't want the court really to 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 ever go really too far left or too far right, I know that people Think that it's you know you want one thing or another, but you really don't because you want these laws that haven't changed for many years to pretty much stay the same. You don't want Brown versus the Board of Education to change. You don't want the Voting Rights Act to change. You don't want interracial marriage to change. You don't want certain landmark things to be changed. And and so you've got to be careful about who you get in there. And, and Merrick Garland, while he's not exciting, he is somebody who would be uh, you know who's very accomplished and understands. The law and how to interpret it. And he wouldn't always be, uh, he wouldn't always be a liberal. He wouldn't always be a conservative, and I think that's perfect, especially in decisions where you have a, kind of have the courts in a four-four deadlock. You need a moderate. You want a moderate guy so that you get a better interpretation of the laws. That's just that's just my opinion. I think he did fine. It wasn't quite splashy. It wasn't quite exciting, but it just showed that he gave them an older white guy that was just kind of like right up their alley, and they still wouldn't go for it. So. In my in my opinion, yes, they can say, well, we'll confirm it later. Maybe if Hillary wins, we'll confirm it. But then they could change that. I mean, I don't know the rules, but it's like, well, maybe Hillary could be like, well, you know, hey, Merrick a good guy, but I have another nominee I want to put out there. And so they're they're taking a big chance because, I mean, right now the Republican Party is in such disarray; they don't know what they're doing. The Only, only thing they're good at right now is obstructing. Uh, justice, or excuse, excuse me, obstructing government right now, That and that's and that's really what they've shown to be, and it's kind of disappointing because, you know, they have potential to be a, a much better party and do much more, but, you know, and, and, and like some people who are, if you're a Democrat or you're, or you're independent and you, and you feel like that's good, I don't feel like that's good, I don't think you should be happy, the Republican Party's in disarray, because still part of our country, and they're still part of the government, and for them to be doing the things they're doing, it's not good, it's not a good thing, uh, for this country, I don't care if you are a GOP supporter or Democrat supporter, or you don't vote. It's not a good thing.
1: Uh, Judge Garland, he he did seem pretty, you know, pretty choked up after Obama introduced him and said it was it was the happiest day of his life since uh, his wedding. And so I, I always like to see raw emotion like that, and you know, it's good that he's happy. And like you say, it's a shame that they're not going to even consider him. He did meet with. Uh, members on the Democratic side um, on Capitol Hill today. Uh, me and Frank, we will give you our thoughts on this Carson interview on the other side of it. But for now, listen to it. Check it out. We hope you enjoy Listen up. It's time for a politically entertaining exclusive interview. Today's guest has many titles. He's a professor, historian, author, and he's a playwright. He's also the director of the Martin Luther King Research and Education Institute. His autobiography of Martin Luther King, the audio version, even won a Grammy in 2000. Dr. Claiborne Carson, thank you for making time for us today, sir. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Um, I I wanted to jump right in um, with... Uh, a question on Martin Luther King. In my opinion, when I, I look at the civil rights being portrayed, it always seems like it's two different sides. There's the, uh, the retaliate with violence side that's portrayed. I guess you can, you know, kind of point to Malcolm X. And then there's the, the nonviolent, uh, just resist with peacefulness side. I read your book, Martin's Dream, and you said you were attracted to the SNCC and their uh, peaceful, nonviolent tactics, what about their tactics attracted you to them versus the, I guess, more violent uh, responses on the other side? You know, I, I don't see it
2: the same way you do as this um, one side or the other. It seems like, you know, you're, you're talking about people on the one end of the spectrum who believe in nonviolence as a philosophy of life, And I think that's always been a very small proportion of the population. And on the other side, those who believe in violent revolution, and that's also a very small number of people. And in between are the rest of us. You know, I I I have met very few people who believe in nonviolence as a philosophy of life, and I've met very few revolutionaries. A lot of people like to... Use the rhetoric of revolution, or the you know the tactic of nonviolence, and that's where most of us are. You know, we'll, uh, if if you participate in any kind of a massive social movement, and certainly the African American freedom struggle is one of the most massive social movements, you'll find that most people are arrayed along that spectrum, and, and depending on what time of life they're in uh, whether they're young or old, whether they're male or female, um, nonviolent tactics make a lot of sense, especially when you're when you're facing Bo Connor's police or Jim Clark's uh, troopers in Selma. Yeah, uh, I, I you know Malcolm X about about uh, picking up a gun and defending yourself. Malcolm X was saying that in New York. He wasn't saying that in Selma, Alabama. When he said Selma, Alabama, you know, he didn't he didn't face up to to the uh, Alabama State troopers. So so I think that a lot of this is is about um, rhetoric and about ego. You know, a lot of men who um, you know, believe that there are potential revolutionaries. Talk about picking up the gun, but very few people in any kind of massive social struggle have ever picked up the gun. The Black Panther Party was one of the few and that, and that took, uh, that was a, a major step that they took in 1966 when they started starting to talk about armed self-defense. And they, and you saw the kind of retaliation that came down on the Black Panther Party. They were decimated uh, during the next couple of years. Uh, so, so I think that when we talk about, to me the most important thing is, are you in the struggle or are you not in the struggle? If you're in the struggle, there's lots of roles for people at every level of the struggle. There's people who are willing to go to jail. There's people who are willing to donate money. Uh, there's people who, like Rosa Parks, who refuse to give up her seat on a segregated bus. And then there might be a few people who are willing to pick up the gun. And all of those are necessary parts of any kind of massive struggle.
1: As you answered that, I, I have to agree, uh, that that seems like a very, uh, sensible, uh, answer. I guess it just seems like a lot of times, the two sides are the ones that are portrayed more so than how you say the 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 in the middle uh you talked about Malcolm X and how he didn't face you know Alabama, Selma, Alabama, and what was going on in Birmingham. The things he said was in New York, and that really helps me transition to my next question. um I feel like Martin Luther King is one of the most celebrated men in American history, but at the same time, and you can you can correct me if I'm wrong. At the same time, at times, it seems like he kind of gets, uh, um, I don't want to say disrespected, but misrepresented at times when some people try to make the point of reverse racism and argue against, uh, things like affirmative action. They'll inject Martin Luther King and say, well, you know, Dr. King said we shouldn't even judge on race or color. We should only judge on content of character. And conversations I have with people at times, they like to compare him to Malcolm X and say, "Well, I like Martin Luther King, but I more agree with Malcolm X, and I really don't feel like King was as quote unquote real as Malcolm X. Am I too hard when I criticize people like that, or
2: well to, to me again, a lot of that is just rhetoric it's just it doesn't have to do with reality. The question is when the struggle when, when you have a chance to join a, a struggle to free African-American people, the question becomes, you know, what contribution are you going to make to that struggle? Are you going to sit on the sidelines and say, well, you know, I, I don't believe in nonviolence, so I'm not going to join that sit-in over there? But I'm go- I'm just going to sit on the sidelines and watch. Okay. And and you know, so for me, I, I the, the question I always ask is, you know, when someone says, "Well, I I agree with Malcolm X rather than Martin Luther King," but the question is, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, are you are you becoming part of a of a struggle, or are you sitting on the sidelines? Because I'd rather have the person who is. Uh, Say, I'm committed to nonviolence, but I'm, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to risk my life to try to make a positive change in society, rather than the person who's saying, well, you know, unless, unless everybody else is... is... Well, I, I guess the question would be, if everyone else started picking up the gun, would you pick up the gun and join the struggle? Because, you know, anyone can rhetorically say, oh, I'm on the side of Malcolm X in that struggle. But if you are in Mississippi and Alabama in nineteen sixty five, that's an irrelevance because there is no uh violent resistance because it would be crushed at that time. But a lot of people picked up the gun in, in Mississippi and Alabama. You know, my dad always had guns in the house. I mean that, that's a lot of people grow up with that and it's, so it's not it's not an either or it's what what works in the situation you happen to find yourself in, and uh you know i a lot of people um you know just just thinking back into the, the slave times, you know how many of us imagine us to be oh well, if I had been back in slavery, I would have been the matt turner
1: we we hear that conversation <laughs> all the time. Yeah,
2: yeah, and 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 you know that ninety nine percent of them would not have been the Nat, Nat Turners, correct? Of that of that time, so it's easy to kind of have this imagination, uh, so that it makes you feel good. But when it actually comes down to the, are you in it or are you not? You're not.
0: That that's such a great point, uh, Professor Carson. And I, and I want to jump in here with with a question for you based. I mean, these questions flow into each other so well. Uh, I just want to know your thoughts on today's generation of young people, particularly African Americans, that don't exercise their right to vote. After all the hard work that you and followers of Dr. King and people who have been in civil rights struggle put in all those years ago, what what does that really say to you that, you know, like you said, whether it be violent or nonviolent, lives are on the line, that that we could have the right to vote, and that there's a generation of people that are out there that are just like, "Ah, well, I may vote. I don't like candidates, you know. What does that how does that make you feel? What do you what would you say to those people?
2: Well that that again gets to that question of of when you have a chance to make a difference, do you make that difference? And uh, you know, voting is is even on the other side. You know, if you talk to that about that spectrum from nonviolence to violence, voting is simply something that you, you do once every you know, year or so, sometimes every two years, every four years for president. It it takes an hour perhaps of out of your time. It's definitely on the nonviolent side, and it makes a difference. So anyone who who says that they're in favor of the liberation of black people and doesn't bother to go down and cast a ballot I I don't even take seriously because, you know, if you are a citizen of this country or even if you don't believe that you're a citizen of this country, you know, then then you've got another problem. Then you should be working on that question. But if you believe that you have citizenship rights and you don't exercise them, then you have no grounds for complaining about uh, anything um because that's the easiest thing to do that's that's the the um, most uh, uh that's that's the easiest contribution you'll ever be able to make to making the world a better place now you can say there's no difference between the two political parties uh but there is you know there there's always going to be uh, there might not be enough of a difference you know between a Hillary Clinton and a Donald Trump but it's enough of a difference to make, you know, for example, on the question of health care. Yeah, we, I believe that health care should be a right. So that's enough of a reason for me to to vote for a candidate, a candidate who is moving in that direction as opposed to someone who is moving in the opposite direction of making it something that if you don't have the money, you don't get it. So, so I think that those differences that, that do exist are, are enough, uh, to make a difference in the lives of lots of people. And I think it's, it's up to us to become educated on those differences and, and make, and certainly make judgments about candidates that are based on more than about personality and who I liked and, and all that kind of stuff. That, that to me is, is pretty irrelevant. I, I think that, what matters is are the issues that divide the the candidates and being aware of those issues and making a choice based on which of those candidates comes closest to fitting your goals for what you want to see in 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 this country
0: and that's that's a great answer and you actually answer part of my second question which is you know, based on the current two-party system, you know, I think you kind of alluded to this, but which one do you feel like is most collective? I mean, most reflective of the triumphs of the civil rights movement, and what changes do you want to see in our political system going forward that you feel like would be better served for all uh, citizens of this country?
2: Well, unfortunately, you know that we're we're in a in a situation where uh, the Democratic Party, for all of its flaws, is the party that brought about the civil rights reforms of the 1960s. The Republican Party, since that time, has gone crazy. You know, there was a a time when the Republican Party and the Democratic Party could reasonably compete for, and wanted to compete, for the black vote. But as you well know, uh, the Republican Party made a decision, a conscious decision in the 1960s to go away from being the party of Lincoln uh, to being the party of resistance to government. And the majority of white Southerners left the Democratic Party and went over to the Republicans, and they're, they're the ones who call the shots right now. And And that's an unfortunate situation. I wish we had a two-party system in which both political parties were uh, competing for the black vote by um trying to to deal with the uh consequences of long-term racism and uh, and trying 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 to heal the wounds of of segregation and and slavery but that's just not the case and uh so unfortunately uh, you know I, I I think someone once said that the Republican party at one point was the island and everything else was the sea well, you know, now it's the Democratic Party. Now, I think that we can push the Democratic Party to, to not take the black vote for granted. But, uh, the notion of giving the vote to the Republicans in order to punish the Democrats just doesn't make any sense to me.
1: And that's something we've, uh, actually talked about on an earlier episode. I- it really frustrates uh, Frank the most that there, there seemingly is no outreach from the Republicans to the uh, Black community. Now, um, well,
2: yeah, I, I think like just what's going on right now with the suppress the vote efforts in a lot of, uh, especially in the Southern states, where they're trying to suppress the Black vote in order to. Now, there's an easy solution to that. If the Republican Party were punished for doing that. Both political parties should be out there trying their best to expand the electorate by bringing in people in, uh, who want to participate in the vote and not setting up barriers like, you know, if you've ever been convicted of a felony, you can't ever vote again, uh, uh making it easier for people to, who move from place to place to To vote, you know, all of these things, uh, not having, um, extensive, uh, voter ID laws that discriminate against, especially against poor people or elderly people, uh, you know, all of these things should be part of the agenda of both political parties. That should be, that should be the basic, um, uh, policy of of any political party would be we want your vote and we want you to vote. And anything that Goes against that should be punished at the ballot box. So, uh, and, and, and if that happened, if the Republican Party were, were punished for that, it would never happen again. Uh, the message would get through that you cannot, you cannot win elections by discouraging one group of people from voting.
1: We are Hmm. speaking with Dr. Claiborne Carson. Again, he is director of the Martin Luther King Research and Education Institute. For more information on that, you can visit kinginstitute.stanford.edu. Last month, um, during the Super Bowl halftime show, Beyonce had a lot of people talking about the uh, Black Panthers, and I think a lot of people were confusing this current Black Panther Party with the original Black Panther Party can you speak to what is the major difference between the original Black Panther Party versus the t- t- today's uh, Black Panther Party?
2: Well, uh, you know, today's Black Panther Party is, is pretty much irrelevant. I mean, we're you know we're not talking about a, a, a major social force out there. The Black Panther Party of the nineteen sixties was a um, probably um, the were the urban equivalent of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. That is, they were the they were the group that had the dynamism and the and the uh, appeal to young people um, that brought in uh, just hundreds and thousands of, of, of people uh, to support them because they just captured the imagination of of young people at that period. And uh, when we think back to that time, you know that that was a uh, you know that that was probably the most promising political effort of the mid 1960s um, and uh now the black panther party made a lot of mistakes and i think uh you know i i think the recent documentary uh, you know the it's quite clear that uh as as i put it in the in the documentary some of the leaders did not uh you know live up to um, the responsibilities of 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 leading that uh, um, that that group. and I think that to some degree you know we can go back and 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 offer a critique of the Black Panther Party. but one of the things that can't be criticized was the courage of the people in it and uh, the the willingness to stand up to authority, the the willingness of of people to now, rather than, uh, you know, simply respond after the fact about police mistreatment, it was the policy of the Black Panther Party at the beginning to, to patrol the police. If you saw somebody pulled over to the side of the road, uh, who was black by a policeman, pull up and observe. And even that was a radical act of, of saying, I am going to watch what you do. And uh, that is my right, and and also it's my right at, to carry a weapon, and and that had a had an impact. Now it it you know looking back, um, I think that it was quite clear also that the police were going to re- retaliate against that. And I think probably the worst thing is that the rhetoric kind of got out of hand. You know, that sometimes the rhetoric gets ahead of the reality of, you know, if you if you talk revolution and you're not prepared for revolution, that's a mistake. Because the response will be as if you were revolutionaries. And And the Black Panther Party was not actually a revolutionary movement. It was it was maybe preparing for a revolution, but um, but I don't think anyone would claim that they were ready for the revolution, and, the, uh, and that was a mistake. That got a lot of people killed.
1: That uh, that Black Panther documentary that you appeared in, uh, I saw it last month on PBS, and I'm not sure if you're aware of uh, a letter that Elaine Brown, former Black Panther member. She wrote pretty much calling it, quote, a disappointment. She condemned it and, uh, mm-hmm. it was shocking at times. She felt like the documentary didn't do the Black Panther Party justice.
2: Uh, well, you know, and- I, I know Elaine. I know Elaine and I've known her for many years and I think she's like a lot of the people in the party who if, if, if they don't make the historical document. If they don't, if they don't make the documentary, they're not going to be satisfied with it. Because how could you be? You know, how how could someone like Stanley Nelson, who was not a part of the party, make a an accurate description? But that, but that's the nature of of history. Is that the participants? They get their chance. You know, and Elaine Brown wrote her book, and you know, I invite, I encourage people who who want to see another version of the black panthers read read her book it's a it's a wonderful narrative but i can tell you that there's lots of people who disagree with her book so you know you're never going to have one account that's going to satisfy everyone and uh, there have been other documentaries about the black panther party and and there, i hope there will be more in the future because you know there were a lot of things left out of the documentary there was nothing about the dispute with the US organization uh, that led to the killings on the UCLA campus. Um, there was very little, actually, about the um, you know what I would call the the down years of, of the party uh, going into the 1970s. Um, you know, it really emphasized the spirit of the party. You know, it was more um, I, you know if you want to if you want to learn about the Black Panther Party, David Hilliard has a has a book about his experiences. Uh, Huey Newton wrote, uh, Revolutionary Suicide. You know, there's, there's plenty of other accounts. And I don't believe that anyone should go to a film and think that they are learning an accurate version of history. They're learning a version of history.
1: That's, that's very important. He is the history professor at Stanford, along with uh, the Black Panther documentary that he appeared in. You've also appeared in Freedom on My Mind, Citizen King, Have You Heard from Johannesburg, and Freedom Riders. You can also purchase his book, Martin's Dream, which is a memoir, My Journey and the Legacy of Martin Luther King, where he tells a great story of a 19-year-old Claiborne Carson. Attending the March on Washington and trying to make his way back home to New Mexico, it was not a straight shot, to say the least. Uh Dr. Carson, uh we really want to thank you for taking the time to make for us at Politically Entertaining.
2: It's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: I just want to say that I, I don't want to speak for you, Frank, but, and I, but I think you will agree. I, I could have I talked to him for the whole hour, man. Like I really enjoyed talking to Doctor Carson.
0: I mean, I can't, I can't agree more. I mean, he had so much,
1: you know, history
0: in in just not just his his answers on different things about what rhetoric is versus revolution, and and he called some but people he, out, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, he really did. I mean, he put he puts he puts some myths to bed uh, that 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 pervade, especially in the black community when it comes to you know civil rights and how to approach it. And how to do it, you know. You'll see stuff on Facebook sometimes about, oh, you know, all this praying and and, and peaceful protest ain't get us anywhere. I I, th- I think I think that is a big misnomer uh, because you know, as, as African Americans, we've never had the numbers advantage to just take on, you know, a a majority, you know, white country, at, you know, as as it were. We we had to enlist the allies because you know, and people need to understand also that there's a lot of you know, white people were involved in the civil rights movement as well. That's how things were able to get pushed forward and, get, and move forward. If it was all, you know, a black militant thing versus, uh, you know, white people, we would have been wiped out, potentially, like the Native Americans were. I mean, you think you, you laugh, or you, you may not laugh. You may not think it would have happened, but the world was a quite a, quite a different time. You know, some you know some years ago, fifty, sixty years ago, who knows what would have happened? But we had, you know, as, as God would have, we had a leader in Martin Luther King that pushed the process forward in such a way that. Allowed you know African Americans and and Caucasian and all races to be able to work together and figure out their problems in a nonviolent manner, so that that was the standard that is how you get things done. And I think that's an important thing in a revolution. You know, the idea of you know shaking down, storming the building sounds good. You know, if you're watching a movie, but you know it takes time to affect change. And I think that you know the Carson, Dr. Carson, with his you know breath just depth and breadth of knowledge on the subject, it's, it's amazing. And I actually need to probably read some of his work to j more of his work to get more familiar with, you know, everything he's done because it was, like I said, it was very impressive.
1: We didn't uh, discuss it during the interview, but uh, folks, if you've been to DC and you've seen the uh, Martin Luther King, the new Martin Luther King monument, he helped, he helped design that. Uh, there there were just so many other questions that I, I would have liked to ask him and I think we'll try to get him on again in the future because there's just a lot of, a lot of knowledge and just a lot of wisdom there and I, I really would like to take advantage of that. Folks, you're going to hear a lot about a broker convention, especially if Trump, well, if Trump doesn't get the 1,237 delegates, 1,237 that he needs, Um you're hearing more and more about a contested or a broker convention. I don't want to spend a lot of time on them. I'm actually going to try to get a, uh, um, an expert as a guest on one of the upcoming episodes to clearly explain it to you. And I don't want to uh, confuse anybody, but pretty much a broker convention is say Trump has 1,100 delegates, but not the 1,237 he needs. Well, then he has to try to convince some uncommitted delegates to come his way. If he's not able to, then they go through this first round of voting on who should be the nominee and all the committed delegates have to stay where they are. And after that first round, folks, if nobody still is at twelve thirty-seven, then essentially every primary and caucus that Trump has won and that Cruz has won and Kasich, there is a is a is a free fall. Then they can commit to whoever they want to. Then, and it would definitely be a a bleep show. You know, we don't curse on the show, but it would be a bleep show. And you, you're going to hear a lot more about it, so I just wanted to kind of give people an idea of that. Did you add? Did you want to add anything to the broker convention, or? Oh, wanna
0: no, I'm good. I mean, I think you hit it all on the head, and, and I mean, I'll have more to say when it actually gets closer to playing out.
1: We just want to thank you again for listening to another episode of Politically Entertaining, and I also want to thank uh, Freddie Jordan, Brandy Black, Jillian Wick. Jillian Williams, you guys have showed us so much support. You've been with us from the first episode. You always have great feedback. Me and Frank, we sincerely thank you. We thank all of the listeners. Like, we we can't thank you enough. It means so much to us. We're really trying to grow this platform each and every episode and reach as many people as possible. So thank you for listening. It's not something we're just saying. We are truly grateful me and Frank are having a ball doing politically entertaining and we hope you're learning something we hope you're learning something and we just ask that you tell someone and get them to subscribe and try to get that person to subscribe as well and just check us out continue to spread the word help us grow the platform frank go ahead and take us out man
0: speaking of subscriptions don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast or any other podcast on itunes just go and type politically entertaining and you'll be able to download the podcast there also if you don't have an iphone you can uh, download us uh, with stitcher and you can listen to the podcast that way we're also on facebook at politicallyentertaining.com. we're also on instagram at politicallyentertaining.com as well and we're on twitter at d-a-v-o-c-a-l minority that's the vocal minority you can definitely tweet at us there and you can always give us the old-fashioned email info at politically we'd like to thank again thank you all the listeners first time we hope to see you back next time if you're a repeat listener thank you for listening again We'll see you soon on another episode of Politically Entertaining. Peace.
1: Thank you for listening to Politically Entertaining. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and visit politicallyentertaining.com for the latest in political news and updates.